You look good 11 o'clock. It's good to see you today in the house of the Lord. If you have your Bibles or something with your Bible on it, if you'll grab that and let's go this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And as you're finding that, let me just mention a couple of things important into the life of our church. Every month we restart what we call the growth track. And the growth track is the on-ramp for everything Rinkin Church of God. If you're new and you want to know, you know, what, what, does this, what does this house believe? What are, what are we all about? How can I get involved? How can I become a member? If, if there's something that you, you want to know more about, then uh, the growth track is for you. And it especially works out good for you 11 o'clock, folks. Because you can come at 9 o'clock, the growth track, come to service at 11. It meets uh, the next round of it starts next Sunday, 9 o'clock in the Life Center. You can go to the website, find out more information. Also, next Sunday, we're going to do something that we do once every three years. And we're going to have a party and we're going to show appreciation to our staff and uh, just celebrate all that they do, all that they are to serve us in youth and Kid City and everything else in between. And uh, we want you to come and celebrate with us. We need you to register by Tuesday. Registration closes Tuesday. You've got to get a number into the caterer. It's a free meal for sixth grade and up. Put on your Sunday best or maybe what used to be our Sunday best. Uh, Pastor Josh said, I'm going to put Sunday best. And I'm like, well, we don't dress like Sunday best like we used to. So put old school Sunday best. How about that? All right. And we're going to come and we're going to have a nice evening together next Sunday night. So let's jump in this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're in this series on the life of David, and today we're going to pick up literally where we left off last week when we, when we finished. Nathan had walked in to speak to David. He was uh, confronting David over his sin. And I want to read that passage again to us today because everything we're going to talk about today pivots off of this scripture. 2 Samuel 17, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I appointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for preserving even the most challenging and dark and difficult stories so that we may learn from them. And that's what you want us to do today. I pray that as we hear this story, God, we would walk away with life-changing application that's going to help us to follow you closely and understand your word more deeply. I pray that as we hear a heavy word today, that we would hear it with conviction and your grace would we be right behind it to bring the strength that you desire to in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
How many of you, by a show of hands, have ever had any trouble in your family? Some of you are raising both hands. Can I get my feet up? Some of you are thinking, yeah, we're laughing across the room because we understand that no matter how shiny and perfect the families around us may look, every family has trouble, right? No matter how we post it up on Facebook, no matter how much we want things, everybody to think everything's good, every family has trouble. And there's two kinds of trouble, trouble from without and trouble from within. And of the two, the worst is the trouble from within. Trouble from without, it hits us, we really don't know it's coming, it might be like a fire or a flood or it might be from a hurricane or a tree coming through our yard and hitting our home or our car. And a lot of times, trouble from without actually serves to bring the family together. Everybody kind of works together, do what needs to be done, the community comes together and, and we work through those things. But then you've got trouble from within. And trouble from within shows up in the words of pressure and tension and abuse and neglect and unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and other difficulties that come when parents walk in the flesh or act foolishly or when children respond in rebellion, disagreement or disharmony and that type of trouble from within tends to tear families apart. Friction between a husband and wife, friction between a, a son and a daughter and those internal troubles tear us apart, especially when it's the consequence of someone else's sin. And today we reach week six of our series on the life of David, the Shadow King, and today is by far the darkest and most difficult chapter in the life of David. In the first few weeks, what we saw about David was that he lived up to his name as a man after God's own heart. We first meet him in the shadow of selection. He's anointed and appointed by God as a young teenager to be the next king. Then we see him in the shadow of opposition and the small David stands up to a large Goliath and, and wins the battle and begins to position himself for the future. Then we see him in the shadow of the spirit and we see him uh, counterbalancing a spirit-less Saul and we have a spirit-led David. Then we see him in the shadow of the ark as he brings the praise and the presence of, of God back to Jerusalem. And then last week, the story started to change in the shadow of sin. And the skies began to darken over Jerusalem as David makes some really bad choices. And it begins to have disastrous consequences. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The shadow of consequence. And I just want to go ahead and tell you today, today's message is a tough one. It's, it leans into the PG-13 rated R side of things. But we're only going to read what the Word says, so be prepared for that. If there's small children in the room, parents, you're going to have some questions at lunch. I'm just going to warn you. That's why we have Kids City down there. But before we dive into the story this morning, I want to uh, start by sharing a principle with you, a biblical principle that's actually found in the New Testament that is important for us to understand because so much of what happens that we're going to see in the life of David, we find rooted in what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 6. In verse 7 of Galatians chapter, uh, verse 4, verse 7, right, of Galatians chapter 6, Paul starts with these three words, do not be deceived. Can you say those with me? Do not be deceived. This is a warning that we actually hear regularly throughout the New Testament 
And God gives this warning ahead of time because he knows that the devil and the flesh and the world will cause us to hear something that we sing or that we read or we experience involving God and try to get us to, to not believe what we're hearing from God's word and wreak havoc on our minds and make us deal with doubt. And so the head of the principle that Paul's about to unpack, he wants to say, first of all, listen, do not be deceived about this. Don't let anyone teach you the opposite of what I'm about to tell you. Okay, you with me? He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. We reap what we sow, forgiveness notwithstanding. If there's anything that we have perhaps been duped into believing in the 21st century American church, and that is that if I'll simply confess my sin, I claim God's forgiveness, that the consequences of what I've done will be whisked away. And, and we kind of have this thought in our mind that, okay, if I'll just follow the rules and I'll, you know, okay, I blew it, I messed up, I, I've, I've I've been in sin, but if I confess my sin and I acknowledge that it's wrong and then God will take away my guilt and God will put me back on the path and I won't have to deal with the consequences. But the Word of God doesn't say that anywhere. Nowhere does it say that. And we just read it again. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow for the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap to the Spirit. In his book on the life of David, Charles Swindoll said this about this principle. He says, grace means that God in forgiving you doesn't kill you. Grace means that God in forgiving you gives you the strength to endure the circumstances. Grace frees us so we can actually obey the Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. Now, if you still don't understand what he's talking about, perfect illustration, listen to this. If I sin, and in the process of sinning, I break my arm, when I find forgiveness from sin, I still have to deal with a broken arm. Does that make sense to everybody? I don't have to over-explain that, right? The consequences are still there. Every one of us can accept that principle on the wall behind me in, in the physical, but sometimes we have a hard time understanding it in our relationships, like when a parent willfully and irresponsibly acts against God's word and they suffer but then it actually has repercussions and consequences within their home with other family members same thing with children who rebel it doesn't just affect the child it also affects the parents and and Paul says whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction and whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap what Eternal life, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? And he gives us this illustration that we all can understand, even though I don't know if we have any farmers here today, but we can get the sowing and reaping thing. I mean, even, you know, if you do some plants in your yard, you know the idea that if I don't put new plants in the flower bed in the spring, it's not going to look pretty all summer. The year I do that, the year I don't do that, it's just going to look drab, Right? So he says there's a principle here, yes, I sow, if I sow to the flesh, I'm going to reap from the flesh. Now, anybody remember back when you sowed to the flesh, was there a good feeling in some of that? Y'all don't want to be honest, 11 o'clock, of course there was. The scripture says there's pleasure in sin for a season. If it didn't feel good, you wouldn't want to do it. 
So it felt good to divulge in the flesh. It felt good to be drawn into those ways. And for, and for a few days or years or months or whatever, it wasn't that bad. But at some point, we have to pay the piper, right? At some point, we reap what we sow. And the principle is also true on the other side. And this is a beautiful thing, that if we sow to the Spirit, one day, if we sow to the Spirit, we will receive what kind of life, church? Eternal life. That's a great deal, right? But most of us were trained in our thinking. We were trained in 1 John 1, 9, long before Romans 6. So what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, we, we use 1 John 1, 9 almost every Sunday at the end of the service when we're leading people to make a decision for Christ. And you know this verse. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Great verse, right? It is the Christian's bar of soap, right? Okay, liquid or bar, okay? Some of you, it's your liquid soap on the loofah. And, 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 it, and it does what it needs to do, right? It, it, this verse lets us know that our sins can be washed away, right? It's an important verse. It's the answer to our problem of sin once it's happened. But can I tell you today, that's not actually the best answer to sin. Romans 6 says this, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of righteousness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Did we just sing that? Death was arrested. Just sung that like 50 minutes ago, right? And offer every part what, what part, church? Every part of yourself to Him as an instrument to righteousness. So what does that mean? That means that as I yield myself to God, when sin approaches, I can say, say it. No. Everybody, one, two, three. That's good. When sin approaches, I don't have to say yes. And in the power of Christ, I can turn away. I don't have to. You, listen, you don't have to sin every day. You don't have to sin every hour. Now we're thankful we've got forgiveness when we fail, but we have bought into a lie that says we, we just got to sin every day. Because if we'll do what this verse says, then we can say no even before that happens. I love in the Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren says this about temptation. He says, temptation only provides a choice. And so often what happens is the devil has tricked us into believing that when we're tempted, then that's the sin. So the temptation's there. For David, the naked woman is bathing. You've seen the naked woman. She's bathing. She's not yours. You might as well just call her to the house. But that only provided a choice for David to say yes or no, I'm married. I'm walking away, right? Temptation only provides a choice. And part of the reason why we don't get the full truth of Romans 6 that's on the screen behind me is because we don't like to talk about the consequences. We like to use the bar of soap and it's washed away and we just grab the bar of soap every time. When Paul says there's actually a better way, church, there's a better way to say no before. The reason why is because grace does not take away the consequences of sin. And if David was here today on the front row, you know what he'd say, Seth? Amen. Grace does not take away the consequences of sin, and that's what we're going to learn today. Last week, we 
we illustrated this principle with this idea and we talked about the the thing that's super popular now you cut on your TV you you open up any if it's Netflix or Hulu or or um, ESPN plus or Amazon Prime and this is what you see you see all these true crime documentaries and obviously people are watching them because there there's more and more of them being made and you watch them and you think who did it? Did they do it? How did they do it? And I, and I see some of you who weren't here last week, you're looking, you're like, have I seen that one? Have I seen that one? Have I seen that one? Some of you, I, I talked to me this week, said, I've seen all of them, Pastor. And why, do we, why are we drawn into this craziness? Because we're wondering, how could that happen? How could somebody who lives like an hour from here, all that stuff, man, how, could, how could that happen? How could the, how could the guy who uh, play in a Super Bowl, Aaron Hernandez be accused of murder the season before. How could the Michael Jordan of the 70s and 80s, OJ, go through what he did and we're like, what? And it, and it draws us in. And, and what I told you last week is if the story of David and Bathsheba would have happened any time in the last 50 years, you would open up your Netflix and this is what you see. Kingdom scandal, fall of the house of David. Can you imagine if that was there? I mean, because this story has it all. It's got lust. It's got adultery. It's got conspiracy. It's got murder. It's got deceit. This is a story that would make it to Netflix. It has it all. And so last week we said, okay, in our, in our series last week, last week's message, if you missed it, you need to go back and watch it because we unpacked how we got to where we are today. And, and we pulled out our remote. We looked at episode one. We talked about the cause of the fall. And then we looked at episode two, which was called The Conspiracy in the Fall. And then we checked out episode three, which is called The Cover-Up. And then we, we looked at episode four, the, the confrontation, and then episode five, The Confession. And so today, we're going to look at episode six, called The Calamity. If you've ever watched any of the series, you know that sometimes one episode will be 45 minutes long, and then another episode you're watching, and you're watching, and you're like, what in the world is going on? It's like, okay, you pause it, and you look at the time, like, wow, this one's an hour and a half long. That's kind of how this one's going to be. There's a lot to, we're going to park on episode six today, because the calamity that happens in the house of David is, is, is crazy what we see happen here. And so, let's check it out. And, and we saw this morning in our opening verse how this whole thing happened. And I won't, I won't reread it, but, but here comes Nathan in, and he looks at David and he says, you are the man. And he's not looking at him and saying the kind of the cool kind. He's not saying, you the man, David. That's not how he's saying it. He's given a parable, and he said, you're the man that I'm talking about. And as a result, let's jump down, Chris, to verse 10. He says, as a result of you killing Uriah, the sword is never going to depart from your house. And because of your decision, consequences, y'all, verse 11, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity. And before your very eyes, I'm going to take your wives and give them to somebody else. You've, you've asked for forgiveness, but that doesn't mean the consequences are over. So what were the consequences in this story? This morning we're going we're gonna to roll through seven consequences in this story. The first one was loss. So after David says, it was me, I have sinned, Nathan looks at him and he says, the Lord has taken away your sin, you're not going to die. And David's probably thinking, okay, that's good. But then he says, but because by doing this, 
you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood behind him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he wouldn't eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died, and David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. And they thought, you know, while he was living, he wouldn't listen to us. And now the child's dead. He'll do something different. And, and David's listening to all this. And he says, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he's dead. So the first consequence of David's sin was that God didn't allow the child that was born through David and Bathsheba's adultery to live. David took Uriah's life to cover his sin. God took David's child in response to David's sin. That's heavy. That's one of those you're like, God, what? I mean, that doesn't really kind of match everything, the loving, gracious God. But what it leans us to is what we're talking about today is that sin has consequences. The first consequence was loss. The second consequence was rape. So the scripture says that David has all these sons and daughters, and we, we meet Amnon and Tamar, and they are half-brother, half-sister, and it says in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom of David. So this is Absalom's full sister, but it's Amnon's half-sister. And Amnon becomes so obsessed with his half-sister Tamar that he made himself ill. He was so full of lust for her that it made himself sick. And, and she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything. And some of his buddies said, well, here's what you need to do, man. You just need to have this plot and lay back in your bed, act like you're sick, and call your dad and say, hey, what would make me feel better is if you get, you know, my sister Tamar to come and make some food and bring it to the room. And so this request comes before David, and y'all, I'm just thinking, if David hears this, he's got it. He should have a check, right, and be like, this is weird. We probably shouldn't be doing this. But he sends Tamar in. She comes in. He grabs her. Amnon grabs Tamar and says, come to bed with me. And Tamar said, let's not do this, brother. Father will certainly give you to me as a wife. We'll work it out. And that's not what he wanted. He was overwhelmed with lust. And he, he took her to bed and he raped her. And the scripture said that he hated her with intense hatred after he raped her. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And he said, get up and get out. The second consequence of David's sin was that his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Now, I think we all come to the table with this story understanding that David's problems were definitely compounded by the number of wives and concubines that he had, right? You've heard the saying, more money, more problems. How about this? More wives, more problems. And we definitely see that here. But here's what's interesting, and you're going to see this throughout the message if you're really listening with me today. And that is that so many of the elements of David's sin show up in the calamity and consequences in his family. Just like David had Bathsheba come to his room with one thing in mind, Amnon has Tamar sent to his room with one thing in mind. Just like David slept with a woman that was not his wife, Amnon sleeps with a woman that's not only not his wife, but is his half-sister. Just like David's rooftop unbridled lust drove him to adultery, Amnon's unbridled lust 
drove him to obsession and this horrific case of rape. The house of David is in full calamity mode. We've had loss. We've had rape. Number three, we have hatred. So following Amnon's rape of Tamar, Tamar normally wears this beautiful uh, dress or gown or outer robe to say that I am one of the, the, uh, the daughters of the king and I'm a virgin. And so she knows the, the policy and procedures. And as she exits from being raped, she rips the robe and puts uh, dust and sackcloth on sackcloth. I'm so glad you don't have to say that word today. On her head, and, and people see what's going on with her, and they understand it. And so her brother Absalom sees it, and Absalom must have known about what was going on with Amnon and his, his lust for her. And look at what Absalom says. Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And you're thinking, what? But... I think he's probably struggling to know what to say. And he says, I'll take care of you. Go to my place and I'll look after you, my sister. Now, what's missing right here is the fact that David should have been the one who said, you come to my house. You're my daughter. I'm going to protect you. You are my daughter. But we don't see that. Verse 23, 21 says, when King David heard all this, he was furious. So David had Amnon brought in. No. It says, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good nor bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So as a result of this sin, there's a significant division now that's starting to happen in the house of David. Absalom ceases to speak to Amnon because of his deep-seated hatred for him. And we see David's response. The scripture just said he was furious. And that's it. That's all David did was he got mad. Don't forget that. Make a note of that, okay? So we have three consequences so far, loss, rape, and hatred. The next consequence is murder one. So the scripture says two years go by. Y'all know two years is a long time for a man who has raped his sister to not have any repercussions for that action. So Tamar has been living in the house of her brother Absalom while Amnon has been carefree and doing whatever he wants to do and Absalom's hatred of Amnon did not decrease one bit it only got greater and greater as time went on he became more hateful he came more bitter and he was just buying his time and so one day Absalom throws a party he throws a sheep shearing party anybody been to a sheep shearing party lately it had a sheep shearing party, and they, they sheared all the sheep, and they got all the wool, and they have a big celebration that this harvest is complete. And so Amnon, Absalom sends word to David. He said, hey, hey, Dad, send all the brothers down. We're going to party. And David does check up here. He's like, I don't know if we need to send Amnon over to Absalom, which tells us David kind of knew what was going on. And, but David is talked into it, and he sends Amnon there. And so Amnon's on the way to Absalom's house. Absalom's been stewing for two years, and this is what it says. Absalom ordered his men, 2 Samuel 13, listen, when Amnon is high in spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you the order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. All the other sons are like, he's killing him. We're getting out. 
So the first consequence of David's sin was the death of a child. And here's this consequence, a death of another child, but an adult son. Now notice another one of David's, uh, the elements of David's sin from last week that wind up in this story. Just like David got Uriah drunk in order to control a desired outcome, Absalom gets Amnon drunk in order to control the desired outcome that only his hatred and bitterness would accept, and that was the murder of his brother. David ordered Uriah murdered, an unnecessary consequence of his sin. Absalom orders Amnon murdered, an unnecessary consequence of his sin because it was something that David should have taken care of. The law said that because of the rape of Tamar, that Amnon should have been killed, but David couldn't go through it, through with it. And so through this consequence number four, we see the words of Nathan to David fulfilled. Watch it. He said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your son. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, watch, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Right there, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. The sword is now showing up in David's house. So we have loss, we have rape, we have hatred, we have murder one. Consequence number five, conspiracy. Second Samuel chapter 13 says, after Absalom fled, so all this happens and, and Absalom kills him, so he has to flee. He goes to a place called Gesher where his grandfather lived. He stays there for three years and, and the scripture says that after a while David uh, kind of, he's dealt with the death of Amnon and he wants to see Absalom. And so he wants to get Absalom back. And some people ask, why, why didn't David try to get Absalom back sooner? Well, David realized that there had to be some kind of punishment for his son, but he sidestepped it. Are you seeing a pattern with David yet? Sweeping under the rug. And so, so David also realizes that now Absalom is now the next in command, so that if something happens to him and he brings him back, who knows what might happen, and, and, and people know what has happened. So he's kept Absalom at a... At a, at a distance, and three more years go by in the story. And David's heart, he wants to see Absalom, but he really doesn't want to bring him back. And so Joab convinces him to bring him back. And so David brings him back, but this is just weird, y'all. It says he can come home to Jerusalem, he can go back to his house, but he can't see my face. So Absalom went to his house and didn't see the face of the king. Do you see again that David is sidestepping the issue? He doesn't want to face up to the problems that are going on in his house. David, Absalom's home, David's procrastinating. But the next verse, one of them, gives us this interesting description of Absalom that will play into our story. Now watch this, it says, Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year, and then only because it was so heavy. He weighed it out, it came to five pounds. Okay? So last week we were talking about this thing, and we said, you know, we were talking about David looking at Bathsheba, and I said, I'm just going to say what everybody's thinking, and that is after we've been in heaven about 10,000 years, all the men are like, where's Bathsheba? I mean, if the Bible said she was so beautiful, I mean, I kind of want to see what she looked like. Well, ladies... It's ladies night. It's your day. 
Because now you're reading this verse and you're like, okay, the Bible, last week the Bible said this was a gorgeous woman. And all the men are thinking, how gorgeous was she? And now the scripture says, Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. And now all the women are thinking, I wonder what Absalom looks like. When we get to heaven, you can be looking for Bathsheba, pal. I'm going to be looking for Absalom. Well, I happened to find a picture of Absalom. So y'all know I got in a little bit of trouble last week with my wife for making the Bathsheba comment. So I heard that as she was texting one of her friends in service while I said that, she said, well, I just hope Thor's going to be in heaven. (laughs) Real whatever. So ladies, there you go. There's your Absalom, all right? We're even, right? All right, get that off the screen. That's very distracting for the ladies. And us men, too, we're like, we we would kind of like to look like that, right? Okay, kind of cool. So, so we know, we kind of know Absalom. I mean, and that's important to know. He's good looking, got the hair, got everything going on. He, he's not yet connected with his father David. And now it's been five years since this happened. And in these five years, watch it, Absalom has left home. He's murdered Amnon. And then um, he's trying to get David's attention. He wants to be able to see David. And so in order to see David... He tries to get hold of Joab, David's first, David's right-hand man. He sends him a message once, Joab doesn't return it. He sends a message twice, Joab doesn't return it. Where their houses just happen to be side by side with each other. And so uh, Absalom says, boys, go out and set his barley field on fire. That'll get his attention. So they set, Absalom sets Joab's field on fire. And of course, Joab shows up the next day. He's like, dude, what's up, man? Why'd you set my field on fire? He says, why aren't you returning my text messages and my emails? I'm trying to get a hold of you. All right, I'm here. What do you need? I want to see my dad. I want to see my dad. I I want to be reconciled. You've got the king's ear. Can we make this happen? So now Absalom's left home. He's murdered Abnon. He set the, the field on fire. But the fire that consumed Joab's field was nothing compared to the fire of hatred and bitterness that after all these years Absalom good looking hair in the wind but inside he is still seething with bitterness and hatred because his dad did not take care of the problem of Amnon and he's had to live separated from the kingdom because of all this mess. And so finally he's brought back, and then he decides, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this work. He's brought in, he's able to see the king, he's kind of back on good terms. And so he says, all right, I got a little money, I'm the king's son, I need a chariot, I need some horses, I'm going to get my hair done. And the Bible says he got in his chariot, he had 50 men ahead of him with his horses, and he just rode around Jerusalem, Dave, just, just letting that hair rock in the wind, you know. And he's just letting everybody see who he is and everybody's like oh who's that oh it's the king's son man and then he positions himself for the conspiracy he goes out to the city gate and as people are coming in he's like hey you want to see dad he's too busy you know he doesn't really want to hear what's going on with you he said and 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 uh, why, why don't you come up here in the chariot and and we'll talk about your problem and they bow down to him and they say oh king thank you and and uh, oh oh prince thank you and and Absalom's like no man you don't have to bow to me I'm not all that that's my dad saying come on up here and the scripture said that they they would even be allowed to kiss Amnon I mean Absalom And so Absalom begins to work to get the hearts of the people. And the scripture says, and so 
the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing and this rising tide is beginning to form and people are like, you know, David's a little old, he's not as good looking as he used to be and this guy's more gracious and he's a man of the people, right? The ultimate politician. And so somebody comes to David and said, the hearts of the people are of Israel are now with Absalom. And David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we've got to flee. None of us will be able to escape from Absalom. He's got more people with him than with us. And David leaves the palace. He leaves and he goes where he used to be, out in the wilderness. And, and, and somebody may ask the question, how does this man of war leave? Well, David did not want everything he had built to be destroyed in Jerusalem. And the other thing is that all David, although David is a mighty man of war, he's not a mighty man of defense. He's always been a man who was a bulldozer. He went in and took care of the, of the job that needed to be done, but he never had to defend a city, and he didn't want his city to be plundered and torn up by his son uh, Absalom. And so he leaves the city, and he goes to the wilderness. And again, we see the sin of David in the sin of this story because David was a master manipulator. He was a master strategist. He comes up with this conspiracy that we looked at last week to cover up the sin of Uriah and, and, and get Bathsheba as his own. And again, here now, Absalom, he inherited that ability of strategy and he uses his own strategy and his own conspiracy so powerful that it runs David off the throne and back into the wilderness where he used to be when he was hiding from Saul. So we have loss, rape, hatred, murder, one, conspiracy. And then number six, if you think it can't get any worse, hang on. Just like every true crime documentary, you're like, it can't get any worse. And then they're like, but then this happened. And David is in the wilderness. Absalom's on the throne. And when David departed the palace, he did one thing. He left ten concubines inside the palace to take care of anything, everything. He was hoping that, you know, maybe... He would come back at some point and everything would be in place. And the scripture said that one of the guys who used to work for David didn't leave with him. He stayed there. His name is Ahithophel. And he, he goes up to, uh, to Absalom and he says, hey man, listen, if you really, really want to prove to everybody that you're the man, that you're king, you should take over the king's harem. And he says, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel hear that you've made yourself obnoxious to your father. And the hands of everyone will, with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. You want to talk about the sin of David being mirrored in the sins of his son? David, the fall of the house of David, began on a rooftop. The dominion of the house of Absalom would be demonstrated through a vile and terrible act on that same rooftop. And this event would serve as the fulfillment of the words of Nathan to David when he said, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. The ultimate symbol, oh, I know y'all are shaking your head. That's rough, man. That's rough for Sunday morning, right? Y'all who are visitors here today, we don't normally go this rated R every Sunday, okay? Just every other week, you know. But that's rough. 
but, but Absalom's in a dark place, right? He's like, hey, if that's what I need to do to prove I'm the man, set up the tent, let's make it happen. One more consequence. We've had loss, rape, hatred, murder, one conspiracy, infidelity, and finally murder too. The final consequence for the sins of David in this part of the story is that murder comes to the house of David. Loss comes to the house of David again. So now the armies are going to go to war. And you've got the armies of Absalom against the armies of David. And there is absolutely no match because Absalom's never had to be. I mean, this is, this is the man. This is David. He is, he is the battle warrior. He knows what to do. Absalom has no chance to be able to defeat his father in this. And so the story goes that they're battling and this thing's going on. And Absalom realizes that he's not going to be able to win. And so the scripture says he's on a mule and he's riding that mule as hard as he can to get out of town. Hair blazing on the way. I mean, he's just rocking that hair and then, whoop, and he gets caught up in a tree. Show that graphic, um, uh, Chris. Uh, he gets caught in the tree. And he's hanging in a tree by his hair. So the war's going on and somebody comes into Joab in the tent and he said, hey man, guess what? Somebody has said that Joab's hanging in a tree. He's like, what? I'm sorry, Joab, they say to Joab, Absalom's hanging in a tree. And he's like, what? Yeah, man, he's hanging by that long locks, man. They were blazing, but they got caught up in the branch of an oak tree. Good old South Georgia oak tree. He's hanging there. He's like, well, let's go now and take care of business. Did you guys kill him? No, we didn't kill him. He's the king's son. You know how David is about killing people close to him. I mean, he gets all bent out of shape. He's like, no, no, the king is not thinking correctly. We'll go I'll go take care of it. And David's right-hand man, Joab, goes up, and the scripture says one, two, three arrows into the heart of Absalom. And then the rest of his boys, you want to talk about a brutal mob, they come up and like ten of his guys shoot arrows in him, and, and he's taken care of. And so the word reaches, Joab comes back, he says, we got Absalom, you know, the, the battle's over, we, we beat him, we got him, he's dead. And so uh, David begins to, to mourn, and, and he doesn't, he, he, he's mourning for Absalom, and, and Joab's like, dude, what is your problem? I know this is your son. But he was trying to kill you. I did what you couldn't do. Now you straighten up and you get out there and face your people. Because if you don't, they're not going to follow you back home to Jerusalem. Talk about a dark day. I mean, we've gone through loss. We've gone through rape, hatred, murder one, conspiracy, infidelity, and now murder two. It's interesting when you think about this, this list and everything that we've talked about. Last week we mentioned the Ten Commandments. Those very commandments that were in the ark that David brought in. And I, and I mentioned to you that in the sin of David that we talked about last week, that he checked off 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And so did his son Absalom, except he grabbed number 5 as well. Honor your father and your mother. It went from bad to worse. And, and, I, and I shared this quote last week, and it's so true for this story as well. And that is that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Some of you can nod with that and be like, yep, I've been there. And it definitely happened in the life of David. Paul comes along in the New Testament. He gives us a verse that we looked at last week that's so important for us to see because he's talking about Israel and all the stuff in the Old Testament. And he says, listen, guys, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Okay, so heavy story, right? There it is. Set the TV up. But what do we learn? 
you know, I don't know, I don't know about you, but when I when I watch things like that, or sometimes you watch a movie and you're looking for, it may be a tough movie to watch, but you're like, what's the redeeming value? Is there a moral? Is there something to learn in the end? And sometimes you see some movies and it's like, that was that was a waste of two hours. And some of you may think, well, this is a waste of 40 minutes of my Sunday. I didn't. I, I come to church to feel better. Well, let me tell you what we learn, because sometimes we need to look at the dark passages of Scripture because they speak very loudly to share things for us that we need to understand. And there's three lessons from David's demise. And I want to share those with you very quickly as we finish up. Number one, leadership requires action. How many people are leaders on your job? How many own your own business? Maybe you're leaders in the military. If you're in a classroom and you're a teacher, you're a leader. Okay. Maybe you've got some people that are over you in your department. You're a leader. You're the one who makes the phone calls and sets the calendar. You're a leader. How many of you are parents? Let me see your hand. Guess what? You're a leader. You're a parent. You're a grandparent. You're a leader. Some of you young adults and teenagers who are here today, you're a leader in a club, band, the sports field, whatever it is that you might do. You're a leader as well. So we've got a room full of leaders here this morning. Okay? So leaders, listen to me. Leadership requires action. What we learn in David's story is that David swept a lot of stuff under the rug and he sidestepped a lot of issues. And I hate to tell you this today, but David was not a good dad. He was not a good parent. He was not a good husband. And here's some of the things we learn specifically about David's parenting mistakes. And let's walk back through some of this. Remember when Amnon asks for Tamar to be sent to his room and says, Dad, can you get my sister to make some food and bring it to the room? David should have had a check right there. Now, if he did have a check that something's not right, he should have never allowed her to go in there. So the rule, what we need to learn as leaders is this, pay attention to your discernment. The Holy Spirit has given all of us discernment. Lean into that. And even if it's something that has nothing to do with Scripture or you're not sharing the Word, you are an ambassador for Jesus everywhere you go. And the Holy Spirit can work on your job to give you discernment about a situation. Does anybody believe that's true? So, so the Holy Spirit will help you to be able to know what to do. Lean into that discernment. And if you don't feel something's right, pray. Say, God, is this me or just the jitters? What is it here? Leadership requires action. We also learned after the rape that it says David was angry, but he did nothing. The lesson here with that is there are times to show grace and there are times not to show grace. Amnon did not deserve grace in this situation. And the thing that makes me very sad about this as, as the father of a daughter is that he did nothing to protect his daughter after that was over that we know of. She wound up in absent he swept the sin of rape under the rug for two years. You know, passive leadership is poor leadership. Passive parenting is poor parenting. And as a parent of three children, I didn't do everything right. But I can tell you this. 
one of the things that irritates me most about parenting today in the United States is passive parents. Leadership requires action. God has placed you in a position to be the mom and the dad. Daggone it, be the mom and be the dad and discipline your children. It is your responsibility, it is your God-given responsibility to do that. And had David taken care of what he needed to do, he would not have had a trail of disaster behind him. Grab some guts and do what you need to do. I don't know why I'm leaning into this. I, I wasn't this fierceful at 9 o'clock. Maybe the coffee's finally in. But anybody else know what I'm talking about? Okay? I won't go through the rest of the story, but I mean, David should have known. I mean, he's out there, hair blazing, riding through the chariots. He should be like, somebody get his hide back in here. He wouldn't face his son. He sent him away. He just kept pushing the problems away. You cannot push your problems away, parents. Face them and deal with them. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And everybody who got disciplined by your parents said a good amen, right? Hebrews said, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Firm, robust, redemption leadership pays great dividends. Leadership requires action. The second thing we learn in this story is that unforgiveness yields pain. We learned this through the life of Absalom. Absalom's hatred grows and grows and grows into this anger with Amnon that cannot be satisfied until he has him killed. Someone said the heaviest thing you can carry is a grudge. And unforgiveness will yield pain in your life. If you don't forgive people, it will grow into bitterness and rebellion, and in this story, it turned into, into conspiracy, deception, and murder. I love this quote from Mark Rutland's book, David the Great, about Absalom. He says, a lifetime of rebellion built around somebody else's sin will destroy you in the end. You can't allow somebody else's sin to tear you up on the inside. You've heard it before. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Jesus said in Matthew 6, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And yes, they hurt you, and yes, it was painful, and maybe it was as rough and terrible as some of the things we've read in this story, but only through Christ can we forgive other people. And that's why Jesus says, listen, just realize how much God has forgiven you, and it gives you strength to be able to forgive others. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, read this with me, just as in Christ God forgave you. Anybody at 11 o'clock been forgiven of a lot? I want to give a lot of grace because when I stand before God, I'm going to need a lot of grace, right? So let's be generous in our forgiveness. So leadership requires action. Unforgiveness yields pain. And here's the third thing we learn. Repentance produces change. 
Let's go back to the morning after David slept with Bathsheba. Let's go back to that morning. He brings her in. He sleeps with her. Even before he realized she was pregnant, if he got up that morning and was like, my boy, that's one of our best men's, my best warrior's wives. I have, I have committed sin. I have committed adultery. What if he sent her home and right then went into the presence of God and asked for forgiveness? What would have happened in this story? You wouldn't have this part of the story to preach. It wouldn't be there. But it didn't happen that way. And we opened a while ago with this, trying to understand this, this thing with 1 John 1, 9, that it's, it's the soap that we can be washed with. And we talked about Romans 6 and Galatians 6, how there's sin and there's consequences and we can say no beforehand. But I want you to see as we finish up here today a very important Deep theological truth. Can y'all go deep for three more minutes before we finish? This is going to be worth your time, I promise. See, we know how to ask for forgiveness of our sins. We use this verse, and we talked about it a while ago, almost every Sunday. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That word confess is the Greek word homologio. And that word confess in the Greek means to acknowledge, agree, admit, and declare. So what I'm doing is when I sin and I come to God, I say, I acknowledge that what I did is wrong according to your word. It's sin. I agree with you that that sin separates me from you. I admit that I did wrong and I declare it wrong. And God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And we've, hopefully everybody in this room has done that and many of us have done that many times, right? That's what it means to confess. But often that's where we stop. We don't repent. We need to understand that the word confess and the word repent are two completely different words in the Greek. Look at this. Jesus says in Luke 13, I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so the word repent is the Greek word metanio, and it means to change any or all of the elements composing one's life, attitude, thoughts, behaviors concerning the demands of God for right living. To, what's the second word right here? To what? What? Change. Okay, so I confess, I acknowledge, I tell God, I, this is wrong, it's against your word. I confess, I have sinned before you. Then to repent, I've not repented yet, I've confessed. To repent means I change. It means I do a 180. And my life was going in this direction, which led me towards sin. But now I'm going to turn and do a 180. And I'm going to change something about how I do life or who I hang out with or what I put in my body or what I put before my eyes or what I allow in my head. And I change attitude, thoughts, and behaviors. And I go according to God, what God wants for me for right living. But too many times what happens is I confess I've been guilty of this, and you have too. So somebody say, come on. Here we go. I confess, and instead of doing a 180, I do a what? 360, and I get right back in it. That is why, oh, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for just saying that to me. That is why some of you keep dealing with the same sin over and over and over. You're confessing but not repenting. You confess, but you don't change anything in your life to go in a completely different direction. If you really want to walk away from that sin, what did I just say? Really want to what? 
walk away, you've got to change some things in your life. You've got to change relationships. You've got to change how you function. You've got to change what you do with that thing in your pocket and where you got. You guys get it. It's a big difference. And I, that is a huge takeaway for today is that repentance produces change. We sang this song last Sunday, one of the most powerful lyrics written in the last few years. I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. Can I get an amen? It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. And unfortunately, in today's 21st century American Christian culture, we are full of grace abusers. And most churches just want to preach grace, 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 and just say that's it. We wash up and there's no consequences. Not in this house. We will preach the full truth of the word of God because that's the only way we can be free. Just understand that God's word says yes, yes, and this is tough because some of you, you're walking through the consequences, but in the middle of all this, there is still hope. There was still, in the middle of what was going to happen with David, God still sent Nathan through the door to call him out of his sin. And yes, he had to walk through the consequences, but next week we'll finish the series. We'll talk about how David lived and how David's legacy lasted beyond him. Let's stand together this morning as the worship team comes. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you today for this message, God. It's, it's been a tough one, I know, to hear. It's been challenging to preach. But God, I thank you so much that you don't hide the greatest failures of some of your most instrumental men and women from our view. You preserve those for us, God, so that we can look and listen and learn. And I pray that would be the case today in this house. I pray that no one would he leave here today overwhelmed and heavy, God, with condemnation. But may we leave today understanding that there is freedom through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, help us to genuinely be people who walk in the truth of your word. That God, we don't just confess our sins and bring them to you to get rid of the guilt. But we change something in our lives. We turn around and we repent. Lord, we don't want to be grace abusers. We want to realize what that grace cost you. God, please don't let us forget. Don't let us get so used.